Village Oddcast. Are we nearly there yet? Yes, Vile. With Megan Argo, Hindi Leclerc, Josie Peters, Mark Pover and Joe Zunts. The Jobcast November 2014 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are Josie and Megan. Hello. Hey. Megan, you haven't been on for a while. When was the last time you presented? I actually can't remember. Me neither, but uh, <laughs> it's good. It's good that you've come back to record again. Yeah, it's always fun. In the show this time, Indy talks to Dr. Scott Ransom about pulsars and pulsar timing arrays, and Dr. Josant answers your astronomical questions. But before all of that, Mark interviews Sally Cooper about hunting for pulsars using the LOFAR telescope in this month's Jodbite. For this month's job, I'm interviewing a PhD student here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Sally Cooper, who works on pulsars. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hello. Can you tell us what a pulsar is and how you go about finding them for your PhD? Okay, so if we start at the beginning, which is a star, towards the end of its life, um, some of them will supernova. And when they explode, you're left with a very dense neutron star. And pulsars are basically spinning neutron stars, which is a bit like an ice skater who's spinning around with their arms out and if they bring their arms in they spin quicker. This is the same for a pulsar. The angular momentum of the star is transferred to the neutron star and therefore it spins rapidly which can be up to hundreds of times a second. They also have really strong magnetic fields and out of the magnetic poles of the the neutron star are beams of radiation and as the pulsar spins as the beam crosses our line of sight which might be the say the Earth, or to us it would be our telescope, we see pulsed emission. And this is a bit like the way a lighthouse works. And I already gave it away that you you look for pulsars. So, you know, you've just made it sound really easy. There's the lighthouse flashing away. Why is it a challenge to find pulsars? Why is it that we're still finding them now? So pulsars have two properties that really help us find them. One of them is its period, so they have really stable spin periods, and the other is their dispersion measure. Dispersion is caused by the interstellar medium, and as the wave propagates through the interstellar medium, um, what we actually observe is that the lower frequency arrives later with respect to the higher frequency. And this is actually worse if you're observing at lower frequencies as well, like the telescope that I use. But actually, we can use this to our advantage by de-dispersing And so we actually correct for this. And as we correct it, this increases our signal with respect to the actual noise. So for a blind search for pulsars, we don't know the period or the DM before we start searching. And so we have to search over a wide range of both periods and dispersion measures. So you can't just point your telescope at the sky and sort of watch out for a pulse. You can't just see these pulses you have to do a lot of computational analysis to actually find these pulses within your data. So we use a telescope called LOFAR, which is the Low Frequency Array. The core of LOFAR is actually in the Netherlands, north of the Netherlands, and it's also it's an interferometer. It's spread across Europe. We actually, for the survey I'm doing, so the survey is called LOTAS, which is L-O-T-A-A-S, and that stands for the LOFAR Tide Array All Sky Survey. With this, we actually only use the superterp, which is the sort of the heart of the core of LOFAR, and this is the central six stations. And it's called a superterp. Terp actually means um, an artificial mound. So in the Netherlands, there's a lot of water, and they've elevated the station slightly. So how do you use these low frequencies in this particular instrument to do your searches? So LOFAR isn't a dish telescope. It's an interferometer of dipoles or antenna. And these are grouped into stations. And this means that LOFAR isn't steerable. You actually steer these beams in software. So um, you can connect all the stations. So like I said, we only use the SuperTERP. And we actually create 222 beams on the sky simultaneously. Um, We can point these in any direction that we want. You can point them at different parts of the sky. What we actually do is we group them into three groups. And we use two different types of beams So we have an incoherent beam, which have a larger field of view, but are less sensitive. And then we also create tide array beams, which are higher sensitivity, but a smaller field of view. We group these in three, and then we tile out the entire sky with these beams. So this is going to be a whole of the northern sky that we're searching over. Wow, that's a lot of sky in very, very small 
chunks. Yes, very small chunks. <laughs> so we're, each observation is an hour long and we're going to first with the larger beams, the incoherent beams, we're going to cover the whole sky first with those and then it's going to take three passes on the sky to cover with the smaller tide array beams. And does this generate a sort of vast amount of data that you then have to track? Yes, this is one of our problems, <laughs> one of my problems. Each hour observation creates four terabytes of data. Um, I actually use a supercomputer in the Netherlands called Cartesius, um, and this is a very big computer, and we transfer our, our data there and then do our pulsar processing. So once you have all this data and you've got your supercomputer, what are you using to go through it? Presumably you don't just dive in and, and look up absolutely every bite of data yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, so we have a Pulsar pipeline and this basically involves taking your data and first we have to de-disperse it. So that is to correct for the dispersion that I mentioned before. And after it's been de-dispersed, we actually do some Fourier tricks, um, some Fourier wizardry, and we compute in frequency space. Well, that's fairly technical, but that's okay. <laughs> so you're looking for periodicities, I guess. That's what you're really doing. Yeah, exactly. It? So pulsars um, have a really stable period, so that's what we use to our advantage. So in frequency space, these show up as big spikes, and we can also add up the harmonics of these frequencies and sort of increase our signal-to-noise as these objects aren't very bright. This helps us increase our signal. Is there an extra step then in recognising that you've actually found a pulsar as opposed to, say, something that just looks quite like a pulsar but isn't? Yeah, so this is one of our big biggest challenges. So out of our pipeline, we get candidate plots. A survey like this um, can generate many millions of candidates. This is one of the challenges is to look through all of these. So one way is to do it purely by eye. And you can sit there. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you could do a million, you know, one per second, it's going to take you a very long time and you need a lot of PhD students to do that. <laughs> um, so what I actually do is look into machine learning techniques. We can actually get a computer to sort of recognise, yes, this is a pulsar. No, this is rubbish. We'll get rid of that. If this is not too strange a question, how does a machine learn? I mean, is it... Like I imagine you're just giving it examples of things that are pulsars or are there sort of special different kinds of techniques? I mean, I wanted to call it a neural net, but we discovered that that wasn't quite correct. Yeah, so a neural net is a, a type of machine learning um, and what we actually use is um, a decision tree. So these are just different types of classifiers. So is a decision tree something like a flowchart? It's going, does it match this? Yes, does it match this? That's no. exactly what it is, like a logic tree. You could play 20 questions with something. <laughs> yeah, that's essentially what it's doing. But um, an algorithm and a neural net is is just a different type of classifier, basically. If it needs to begin with examples, is that how it starts, basically? Yeah, so the classifier needs some sort of input. And for this, we need to represent our Pulsar candidate plots in some way. So we use eight scores, which are actually only based on two parts of the plots, which is the profile and what we call the DM curve, so the, the signal um, with respect to the dispersion measure. And we take the statistics of these two plots and use them as our eight scores. Now we can feed the classifier these eight scores and out pops your answer. But actually, like you said, you need examples. And so you have to train your classifier. And so you get a training set and you give it sample of known pulsars. And then you also give it a collection of junk, which is essentially some of it will be RFI, some of it will just purely be some random bits of noise. And then you give those to the classifier and the classifier actually trains itself. So at each iteration, it has an error involved in terms of how many did it get right and how many did it get wrong. And the more you train it, the lower your error. Um, but actually, you can overtrain these things, which is that you get too specific. It's too focused in on the, your training set that you've given it. And actually, when you're doing a blind survey, you don't know what you want to find sometimes you you know you know you want to look for pulsars but you might see something else interesting you don't want these classifiers to be too honed in on your training set so you can't overtrain them and do you still look at the output from that then to decide which ones need to be pulsars and which ones you want to look at again once we've run the classifier it then says yes these are all pulsars and then at that point i then look through them by eye so at the moment we have 3 million candidates so far for the survey and the classifier reduced these down to around 8,000. 
So I've now looked through those all by eye. I've now seen nine pulsars, nine new pulsars. The first four are actually found purely by eye without the classifier because one of the problems is that the training set has to be known examples of pulsars and LOFAR is a new telescope and hadn't, before the survey was running, hadn't seen any known pulsars so you have to sort of look through quite a few candidates to begin with just to get your training set and when I was looking through those known ones I discovered four pulsars and since then, since we've run the classifier, we've found a further five. It's good to know that you still have a purpose in this pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> the computer hasn't just kind of wiped out your job. Yeah. That's nice to know. And so I guess that brings on to an obvious question. Are these pulsars different to ones that are found in other surveys? I mean, you mentioned it was low frequency. Are they a particular sort of population with certain characteristics? Or or can you say why they haven't been found before? Maybe people just hadn't looked in the right part of the sky yet. Yeah, so one one part of it could be the sky, the fact that we're doing um, a northern survey. There are other telescopes that are searching that sky as well. Most surveys have been done in the southern sky where the centre of the galactic plane is. But the other reason is that LOFAR is low frequency, so we observe the centre frequency of our observations is 135 megahertz. This really hasn't been explored much in the past at all for pulsars. That almost sounds like you could tune your FM radio into it. It's just above, isn't it? Yeah, so LOFAR actually <laughs> does cover the FM band, so the whole of LOFAR can observe between 10 megahertz up to 280 megahertz. And so, yeah, they have to cut out the FM part of the band. Wow. <laughs> but we observe higher than that, so. And what's your motivation for wanting to find more pulsars? So the survey we're hoping to find uh, in the region of about 200 new pulsars, and we want to use these to really characterise the population of pulsars, especially because this is a low-frequency survey and we've not really explored this regime yet. And these population studies we can then use to confirm the relationship between neutron stars and supernova remnants and therefore pulsar formation. And the other thing that we're interested in is because we do have a multi-pass nature of the survey where we're going to cover the sky three times, we might also be sensitive to transients, so things that might have been might have been missed in one pass and then we see them again in another pass. And this could be maybe intermittent pulsars or things turning on and off or just one-off bursts. Well, as a last question then, um, you found these nine pulsars and perhaps for those particular pulsars you were the first person... It- ever to see them. Is that exciting? How do you feel about being the first person to see a new object? Or let's say an old object that's been waiting a long time to be discovered? Yeah, it's really exciting. I spent maybe a year and a half searching before I found one. (laughs) And then, like buses, I found two in a day. Um, And there were quite a few of false, false hopes, should I say, where it was something that maybe looked like a pulsar. We tried to re-observe it and there was nothing there. So yeah, when I eventually found the first one or two, um, I was really happy. I think it's really quite special that I'm the first one to ever have seen these, unless there's some aliens somewhere that have seen them (laughs) as well, but I'm the first person that's seen these pulsars and I like the fact that this is contributing to our knowledge. I find that really exciting. Fantastic. Well, I hope you discover lots more pulsars without having to trawl through too many millions and millions of candidates. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Next up, Indy interviews Dr Scott Ransom about pulsars. Today I'm with Dr Scott Ransom. Hi, Scott. Hi. Glad to have you with us. So you're visiting at Manchester University for a couple of days. So um, your main area of study is pulsars. That's right. And would you like to just start off by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself and your background in astrophysics? Sure. So my name's Scott Ransom. I'm uh, an astronomer at the National Radio Astronomy astronomical, I should say, observatory in the U.S. Uh, we run the big radio telescopes that are there, the, the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, and especially what a lot of people know about is the Very Large Array in New Mexico, which was in the movie Contact and stuff. I'm also at the University of Virginia, where I work with some students there. But as you said, my main research interest is pulsars. So I do all sorts of neutron star stuff and pulsar stuff, however much I can, because I totally love them. Yeah, I mean, one of my memories is listening to a talk that you gave, which was basically just called Pulsars Are Awesome. Uh, <laughs> so... Could you remind our listeners, because we do have a lot, of, uh, quite a few people to come on here that talk about pulsars and pulsar-related things, because mm-hmm. this is Dr. Bank, so That's right. we like our pulsars. But maybe just a quick refresher for our listeners as to sort of, you know, what a pulsar 
is basic facts and, and why it's kind sure. of interesting. Yeah, so a pulsar is basically what happens after a massive star exhausts all of its nuclear fuel uh, during its lifetime. So it collapses, the center of the star collapses, and the star explodes in a supernova, and the neutron star is basically the stellar undead, the corpse of that star basically that's left over. So in general, we see them right after the supernovas, and they only last usually for a few tens of millions of years. And the reason we call them pulsars is because they're rotating, just like a figure skater when she pulls her arms in, when you take the, the slowly rotating core of a star and it collapses into something the size of a city, because these are neutron stars, which are tiny, mm-hmm. uh, about the size of a city. They rotate pretty rapidly, and because they have strong magnetic fields, that causes beams of radiation. So like a lighthouse, we see pulses of, of radiation. And then that's the general picture of what a pulsar is. And my particular kind of specialty, though, or the things that I really like are a kind of an exotic flavor of pulsars known as the millisecond pulsars, which can spin hundreds of times per second. Okay, so that's that's the basic lowdown on pulsars. And what are they useful for? I mean, at first glance, they're just kind of cool, rare objects in the universe, but I guess there's a reason that so many astronomers and astrophysicists want to study these things, apart from the fact that they're really rare. Yeah, no, they're truly amazing objects. So if you study just the objects themselves, they're extraordinary. They're, uh, like I said, they're the size of a city. They can be rotating hundreds of times per second. They have the strongest magnetic fields we know of in the universe. Their gravities are billions of times the surface gravity of the Earth. They're basically gigantic nuclei. I mean, there's the amount of exoticness of these objects goes on and on and on. But even if you forget about all those things, they'd still be really interesting objects to study because of the fact that they spin so perfectly. They're like these ultra-dense flywheels in space, and nothing is there to slow them down except for the radiation that they're giving off. And so because they're spinning so perfectly, we can use them as basically natural, perfect clocks. And when you have a ticking beacon out there, it lets us map things out, lets us track things over time that we just simply couldn't do unless we went out there and put a device like a clock, exactly sure, like yeah. the pulsar is doing it itself. So even just forgetting about the fact that they're incredibly exotic, their use as tools is what makes a lot lot of people just find them fascinating and useful. Cool. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that means that you can use them to study tiny variations in space-time and that sort of thing because Absolutely. you've got a really regular signal? Yeah. So one of the big projects that's going on internationally, and Jadro Bank is part of it, my organization is part of it, are these things called pulsar timing arrays. And there's three big groups which are kind of collaborating and competing at the same time. And, and together we joined to be called the International Pulsar Timing Array. And we're using the biggest radio telescopes in the world to track the pulses from about 50 or 60, even more than that now, almost 70, I think, millisecond pulsar looking for exactly what you said, tiny little deviations in the ticks of their clocks that we think, if we measure them correctly, are going to show that the universe is kind of stretching and compressing due to gravitational waves, which is exactly what Einstein's theory of general relativity predicts. Yeah. So literally, these things are so precise that if something goes wrong, it's not the pulsar's fault, it's the space around it. That's right. (laughs) And the amount of the wiggle in those arrival times Mm. is ridiculously small. As the pulses are traveling, the, there are thousands of light years from the pulsar to us. Yeah. These big wiggles in space-time, the ripples in space-time, cause the pulses to only change their arrival times by a couple tens of nanoseconds. So that's a tens of billionth of a second. And our timing precision is so good that, at least on some pulsars, we can actually get down to that level, which is astonishing. So maybe could you like take us into how you actually achieve that kind of precision? Because, I mean, you're not using, obviously, stopwatches, but like, how do you get to this kind of, I mean, I'm assuming it's way smaller than nanoseconds. It's like 10 to the minus 15 seconds or something like that. When you look at the total uh, fractional error, so to speak. So if we look at the amount of time error we get by observing a pulsar for a long amount of time, mm-hmm. so what's the smallest amount of time deviation over, say, 10 years? Yeah. That number is about 10 to the 15, so 15 wow. orders of magnitude. And that comes from this amazing technique known as pulsar timing. And basically what happens is we are unambiguously counting every single rotation of the neutron star. And these are the millisecond pulsars that are spinning hundreds of times per second. So that means that we have to count billions and billions and billions of these rotations perfectly without missing a single one Mm -hmm. by using these really, really large telescopes. And just to do that, it means we have to track the motion of the Earth, the motion of the observatory, the motion of the pulsar to incredible precision, or else we're going to miss ticks of the clock, so to speak, from the pulsar. But the neat thing is once you get it right... And it takes, you have to observe in a very special sequence in order to establish what we call the pulsar timing solution. But once you do that, you kind of lock into a solution and you can basically go away for months even without even measuring the star. And when you come back, the ticks ticks appear exactly where you expect them to. And you know exactly how many pulses or or how many times the neutron star rotated. That's really cool. So yeah, you mentioned big telescopes. One of the particularities of of pulsar observations is that you just basically want the biggest telescope you can get to see them, right? So that means you get pretty cool telescopes. So there's, uh, well, tell us a bit about which telescopes you usually use. 
So exactly what you said, big telescopes are crucial for pulsar astronomers because pulsars are really, really faint objects in the radio. There was some, I'm, I'll, I'll probably get the details of this number screwed up, so maybe if anyone's listening to the podcast, <laughs> they can send me an email and correct me if they calculate the right number. But it's something like, if you take and measure the total amount of energy that all the radio telescopes have ever measured from all the pulsars we know about, it's equivalent to like two or three falling snowflakes or something. That, that's the amount of energy. Yeah. So yeah, they're incredibly faint. And so I use the big Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. It's uh-huh. 100 meters diameter, and it's fully steerable, which really helps because we can see a lot of the pulsars in the southern hemisphere, which is where most of the pulsars are. Okay. And then the other amazing telescope that we use is the Arecibo Telescope, which is built into the ground as seen in the James Bond movie, whichever one that is, Golden Eye, yeah. <laughs> and so it's built into the ground, and it's 300 meters in diameter, uh, which gives it incredible sensitivity. So for pulsar people, basically, if there's a pulsar in the sky... And if Arecibo can see it, that's the one you want to use because it's going to give you by far the best data of any other telescope. Sure. So going back to the comment you made about how you see most pulsars in the Southern Hemisphere and kind of leading on from that, how do you, if they're so faint, how do you even find them in the first place? Right. So this, the whole pulsar search process, how we do that is that's one of my specialties and one of the things I concentrate most on. Okay. It's a tricky, tricky problem. And every big major single-dish radio telescope in the world right now is basically part of a big pulsar survey because people have realized how useful these things are for physics, so we want to find more of them. But it's a really tricky problem, and it uses a huge amount of computing because what we have to do is you take these big telescopes and you point at a single point on the sky, and usually that size of that point on the sky is smaller than the size of the moon, for instance, substantially smaller usually. Yeah. And you can put a lot of full moons across the sky. Well, so. yeah. Well, I was going to say that. I mean, even in astronomy, the moon is considered pretty big on this guy. Exactly. That's right. So even for that one pixel, if it's, say, a quarter the size of the moon or something, we basically have like radio channels, just like the radio in your car or something. But we'll have thousands of frequency channels that we monitor, and we take data about every 20,000 times per second on every one of those thousands of frequency channels. And that means we're taking gigabytes of data every minute. And so these surveys take petabytes of data. So that's a really large amount of data, (laughs) thousand terabytes. And in order to process it, because these are incredibly faint signals in tons and tons of noise, it really is a needle in a haystack type problem. So there's very special algorithms and software that people have written. Matter of fact, my PhD thesis was writing a big suite of software to do pulsar searches. Sure. So then you throw a big, massive supercomputer at all this huge amount of data and then generate millions of candidates, which might be pulsars. Right. And unfortunately, only about one in every 10,000 or one in every 100,000 of those millions of candidates turns out to be a pulsar. So it really is an incredible computational and sifting problem. But then you find some really amazing things when you do it right. Yeah, no, definitely. And so if I'm not wrong, I think steps have been taken to try and automate this process a bit more from getting from like millions of candidates and sifting those out using computers and and machine learning. That's right and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a big research uh, effort going on right now by a bunch of different groups to use various types of machine learning because as we've increased the amount of data we generate, the amount of candidate potential pulsars, that number's gone up just as fast or even faster. And so it used to be that a poor graduate student would have to look at you know, hundreds or, or thousands of plots. But a graduate student now can't look at millions of plots. So we really do yeah. have to think of new ways to have the computer sift through all the chaff so we can get the wheat. Nice. But I'm going to come back to another thing you said, which is sort of, so say you point your telescope at this tiny patch of sky. How do you know that it's that patch of sky? Or does every patch of sky have equal chances of containing right. pulsars? Okay, so <laughs> that's a great question. So several types of searches that are going on right now. In general, uh, millisecond pulsars, the ones we really want to find, mm-hmm. they tend to be quite nearby us in the galaxy. Okay. And so it's just like most of the stars you can see with your naked eye. In general, we see no real preference of which direction stars are in the sky. Yeah. So we have to look everywhere. And that's what makes these things take petabytes of data. But the center of our galaxy, so most of the stars, if you get your binoculars out, most of the stars are actually towards the southern hemisphere because that's where the center of our galaxy is. Sure. And since pulsars come from massive stars, most of the pulsars tend to reside towards the direction of the center of the galaxy. And that's why the southern hemisphere has more than the northern hemisphere does. But that's kind of for the slower pulsars. The millisecond pulsars in general, at least the ones that we want to measure, are closer to us. And so they're kind of all over the sky. So that's why we have to search in every direction. Okay. And could you not pick up different types of radiation because given that they're kind of dying stars-ish or they appear sort of when a star collapses, are there not other signatures that could lead you to say, oh, there's going to be a pulsar over here? Absolutely. And there's kind of become a little cottage industry of figuring out ways 
to find the best spots on the sky in which to look for pulsars. And what thing you mentioned is when you have a massive star and it dies in a supernova, it leaves behind, for instance, a supernova remnant. Yeah. So one of the things that people have done in the past is basically every supernova remnant that we see, people have pointed big radio telescopes at the center of the supernova remnant, looking to see if there's a pulsar in the center. And they've been very successful. Many supernova remnants have those. Another thing that's been really great in the last five or six years for millisecond pulsars and this was a surprise, we didn't know this, was that it turns out that almost all millisecond pulsars give off gamma rays as well oh. as radio waves. And about five years ago, the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope was launched, and it has been surveying the whole sky in gamma rays, and it's found these gamma ray point sources scattered all over the sky that weren't associated with known galaxies or anything else. So we started pointing radio telescopes at these Fermi Gamma Ray point sources and finding millisecond pulsars, nice. which are exactly what we're trying to search over the whole sky for. But it's like Fermi basically gave us little x marks the spots on the sky and gave us a place to dig for treasure, kind of. So it's been, it's been really useful. Wow. And That's... using that technique, we found over 60 new millisecond pulsars, which is amazing. Okay, so actually that brings up another question. How many are there? Like, how rare are these right. things? Like you say 60 is a lot, so I'm assuming that there can't be more than a few hundred. Uh... That's right. So regular pulsars, the ones that spin about once per second, um, the ones that are tens of millions of years old after supernovas and stuff, mm-hmm. There's, we know of about 2,300 of those, a little bit more than okay. 2,000 in our galaxy. We think the galaxy contains about 30,000, so we only know of less than 10% in our galaxy. Is that because the others are too weak to be detected? That's right. Okay. Yep, so that's why we need those bigger telescopes. Fair enough. <laughs> For the millisecond pulsars, it's a little bit of a coincidence, actually. Mm-hmm. We think there's roughly about 30,000 or a few tens of thousand millisecond pulsars in our galaxy as well, but we only know of about 200 of them, maybe 300. We, we might be up to 300. And so to have Fermi find us 60 of those, and these other surveys found us about another 50 in the last few years, that it means that we've doubled. That's actually much more than that. Uh, in the last 10 years, we've quadrupled the number of millisecond pulsars that we've known wow. about. And just in the last five years, we've more than doubled. Wow. And a lot of that's been due to Fermi. So that's, it's a big improvement. Awesome. So... Basically, the discovery of gamma rays coming from pulsars was a coincidence because the Fermi people were like, what are these point sources? And then realized they're pulsars. So do we know much actually about how the emission mechanism works and how it gives off? So we know it gives off radio waves and now gamma rays, but do we know actually a little bit about how these things work on the inside or is it a bit of a mystery? Yes to both those. We know know a little bit. So in a very kind of hand-wavy way, we know Mm -hmm. how they work. But the details, even though we've known about pulsars for over 40 years now, the details are still quite a mystery. So the basic mechanism, which we can explain here, is quite well known. And so the idea is you have a strong magnetic field. So just like a, the magnetic field you get on a, like a refrigerator magnet or something, or a bar magnet. You've seen all these, these pictures of the way a bar magnet has these magnetic field lines that go out of one end and come back in the other. Yeah, yeah. And if you take that bar magnet and you start rotating it, but not necessarily on its correct axis so that it's tilted, okay. then you have this a misaligned magnetic field, basically, that's moving. And one of the neat things about the way electromagnetics work is that every time you move a magnetic field, you generate an electric field. Yeah. And so this rotating neutron star with a moving massive magnetic fields is generating these huge, incredibly strong electric fields. Mm-hmm. And those electric fields rip charges off the surface of the neutron star. So electrons and positrons are get ripped off the surface of the neutron star and accelerated to incredibly fast velocities right near the speed of light. Right. And as they're moving near the speed of light, they're moving along the magnetic field lines. And one of the things that happens with an electron whenever it curves like that at very high velocities is it gives off radiation. So that acceleration causes high amounts of radiation and sometimes the energies are so strong that radiation which tends to be gamma rays can create other particles which then are accelerated so you get these massive cascades of particles that generate more gamma rays Mm -hmm. and this cascade of radiation then it gets beamed out and then they also all wiggle together and create radio waves etc it's a very complicated process but we think we understand basically how it's working okay sure but the nature of pulsars themselves means that you can do something like take the spectrum of a pulsar. You can like study its radiation as it varied like by a long wavelength, basically. Or People have tried. Okay. But yeah, there's no spectral lines, for instance, like you'd see from yeah. an optical star. No, sure, yeah. And the reason for it is that this type of acceleration mechanism where you accelerate these charged particles, some particles get accelerated slightly less than others, so they're each giving off slightly different radiation. So you see a very smooth, kind Continuous, of featureless, yeah. yeah, it's a continuum, yeah, rather than spectral lines. That's exactly right. Sure. Okay, cool. And to kind of try and wrap things up, so what's the next big discovery that, that pulsars want to make? So gravitational waves, you mentioned, are like basically a big goal. So who's going to get there first, LIGO or (laughs) Pulsars? 
Well, I mean, Advanced LIGO, basically, they're now uh, in the last stages of bringing the Advanced LIGO, which is a major upgrade to the LIGO facilities. Mm -hmm. They're bringing that online over the next year or two, and it'll probably take a full year to shake it down and get the detectors working perfectly. But they're already ahead of schedule. They're doing great. Oh, okay. So, truthfully, LIGO will probably detect something in, let's say, roughly two to three years from now. Cool. Which is great. Our chances of detecting something within two to three years is slim. It's possible, but it's <laughs> slim. So I think we're kind of a dark horse. You know, we're a potential dark horse contender. Okay. Uh, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money on us right now <laughs> to be the first. <laughs> well, actually, in some, I reckon it's probably almost as good to be second because independent confirmation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the neat thing about it is the LIGO stuff is very different part of the gravitational wave spectrum. So it's completely different sources. It's right, like. Right, right. It's like uh, being able to see in x-rays compared to radio waves or compared, you know, optical light compared to gamma rays. It's completely different objects we see in each of those bands. Sure. That's great. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thanks thanks a lot for coming along and um, hope to see you around soon. Sure. Cheers. Thanks for that indie. And now it's time for that part of the show where we talk about everything we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And I'm going to go first by giving a big cheer to Philae, which has landed on the comet that I can't really pronounce, but Megan can pronounce it. <laughs> Hooray for Philae. Churyumov <laughs> Gerasimenko or something along those lines. Thank you for pronouncing that for me. This has happened actually just less than an hour before we recorded this episode of the Jogcast. And already there are things out on the internet all about Philae's triumphant landing. So Philae is the lander that's part of the Rosetta mission sent by the European Space Agency. And it is the first thing that humans have ever made that has successfully landed on a comet going around the sun. So that's pretty exciting. So they were landing it from, I think it was a height of about 20 kilometres down onto the comet. It took about seven hours, didn't it, from this morning? Yeah, separation was at 9am Greenwich Mean Time this morning. Yeah. And then landing was at five minutes past four Four. Greenwich Mean this afternoon. That's a pretty gentle descent. Yeah. And now it's not just going to sit there, fortunately. Um, It's going to be drilling down into the surface. And it has apparently 10 scientific instruments. And it's got 64 hours until it needs a recharge by its solar panels. And apparently that's important because they're not absolutely sure uh, that they're going to be able to get enough uh, juice from the sunshine. So they're going to try and do as much as they can in the next 64 hours and then hope that things either carry on working or I suppose start working again when they get closer to the sun. Because mm. they're going to be riding the comet all the way around the sun. Which is really exciting. Yeah. How cool is that? You can watch the comet get active as it gets towards the sun. That's just so cool. Yeah, Philae's already been sending pictures back to Rosetta, which then been sending them back to us. It's brilliant. Yeah, like the, the selfie that um, was on Twitter. They, wow, it's been posted everywhere. But yeah, they posted the, the picture of Philae leaving Rosetta. And then when Philae actually landed, it posted on its Twitter account. My new address, 67B in about 50 (laughs) different languages in the space of five minutes. They're going to be looking for organic molecules. And apparently organic molecules have been discovered before in um, cometary tails, I think. But they're going to be able to check whether they formed in the nucleus of the comet or later on in the tail. And this is kind of important for us because ultimately we're all made of organic molecules. So is everything that's living on the Earth. And so... If they find that they're inside the nucleus or that that's where they've been formed, it's possible that other comets could have actually survived entry into the Earth's atmosphere and deposited organic material on the Earth, which is how some people think life might have started here on this planet. That's lots of implications for SETI, I guess, if they find the organic molecules in the middle of comets, and comets are, you know, ubiquitous. There are thousands of them in the solar system. Yeah. Um, and presumably thousands in other solar systems as well. So It would be so, I don't know, it would be just kind of strange if... Comets were required to kind of germinate life on the planet. We all turned out to be aliens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the talking of life, the, the funniest quote I heard um, with regards to Rosetta and Philae was this morning on the Today programme on BBC Radio 4 where they played a sound sample from one of the instruments on board Rosetta, which is a, a device to detect plasma. And what they found was that this this really strange signal that they can't quite explain at the moment, and it's really I think we'll try and insert a sound sample. But John Humphreys described it as sounding like an amorous toad on a midsummer's evening, which I thought that's a strange description of a comet. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly paints quite a picture. Yeah, yes. I haven't heard that, but for listeners, here is the sound of either an amorous toad or a... the plasma around a comet. Yes. Make up your own minds. <laughs> 
There we go. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> kind of add some sort of extra personality aspect to the comment. <laughs> okay. Um, my odd and end today is a bit about a different comment, uh, but this time one that was going past Mars. So it was, I think it was around, yeah, the 19th of October. There's a comment called Sliding Spring. And as it travelled past Mars, there were observations able to be made by two NASA and one ESA spacecraft. And so they got some really good sort of close-up observations and were able to see how it impacts on the Martian atmosphere. So this this is a comet passing Mars, right? But we've seen other cases where there's a, there was a bits of a comet that hit Jupiter several years ago. But this is not actually hitting the planet, right? It's not actually hitting the atmosphere. It's the tail that's hitting the atmosphere. Yeah, so it's actually only, well, it's about 139,000 kilometres from passing by through by Mars. Um, but I think one of the other reasons why it was so interesting as well is because it's come from the Oort cloud, so it's like one of the most distant regions it could have possibly come from. All right, so one of the spacecraft, uh, MAVEN, which stands for the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission, has produced sort of quite a lot more of the data than the other two. So it's, you know, it was able to detect the comet encounter within sort of two days, and it was using uh, UV imaging equipment, so it was able to see the UV emission from different ions, like magnesium and iron ions, like high up in the atmosphere. Um, and sort of the meteor storms that have occurred here, there on Mars, like nothing as strong as that has ever been detected on Earth. Um, and so it's... Yeah, I've got much more of an impact on what's happening to the atmosphere. I mean, it's the the UV spectrum was sort of dominated by this emission from the comet for hours after the encounter, and it's only just taken amount, the amount of time to dissipate over two days afterwards. So it stayed there for quite a while. And then also, using that, obviously, it's been able to detect a lot more of the composition of some of the comet dust. Um, so, I mean, they found, like, eight different types of ions. Uh, I mean, like... Yeah, as I mentioned, like magnesium and iron, there's also some sodium as well. Yeah, and this increased ionisation, which has been seen by MAVEN, is like the result of all these fine particles coming from the comet's tail burning up in the atmosphere. I mean, it, yeah, it has been mainly looking at the ionosphere, so then it also, you know, discovered that sort of the electron density there on the planet's night side, where the observations were made after all of this happening, was in five to ten times higher than usual, which is quite a lot. So they were basically having yeah. a mega meteor shower yeah, on Mars. Yeah, like really, really intense, like nothing that anyone here has ever seen. <laughs> if you just imagine it happening on the Earth, apart from the awesome show that you'd get with all these millions of meteorites hitting the atmosphere, the ionisation would cause, it would seriously affect radio transmissions, because when you ionise the atmosphere, the, the critical frequency above which radio waves bounce off the ionosphere instead of passing through it would change quite dramatically. And that happens anyway with solar flares and things, but this would be orders of magnitude more intense, I would Suddenly imagine. start picking up radio stations from, from the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. They would but, skip around the whole ionosphere. And, yeah. I mean, spe- speaking of, did you hear um, about the really large sunspot mm. that is just coming out of view at the moment, but it was actually, it took out some radio signals in some parts. Yeah, it wasn't we, very specific, weekend before I tried last, to find out. But it, yeah, weekend before last, um, there was, there's a, an observatory in Belgium that I know of that looks, they had to have a solar telescope and there was, a friend of mine was posting pictures, he was observing on duty that weekend, he was posting pictures of this enormous solar flare coming off that yeah. sunspot. Um, it was pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah, I think they're hoping it to tone down a bit before it comes back round. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with the comet, I guess it helps to actually find out what is in the tail. Yeah. When, it, when it interacts with the atmosphere. And they also were able to find out that, I mean, they expected the nucleus to be about two kilometres, but it's actually smaller than they thought it was going to be, so that's quite interesting as well, getting that more of a close-up shot and um, seeing more of the structure of what it actually look, look, looks like maybe can determine from other things that are further away. Now you've got this better idea of something else they've seen close up, what it might actually be like. That's pretty clever. If you can't land on the comet, next best thing. Yeah, that must have looked pretty impressive from, from the sky. If you were sitting on Mars, just watching the comet, never mind the meteors go past. The comet itself would have been quite impressive, Yeah, I should imagine. Yeah, there, there are a few pictures um, in the chosen article, but they're, they're quite blurry. Yeah. Not, not so pretty. Well, moving on to a 
possibly slightly prettier picture. Last week, there was a press release from ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is a, an array of telescopes working at high frequencies, sat up in the high mountains in the Andes in Chile. And there was a press release of an object called HL Tau, which is a star in the constellation Taurus. Okay, so this star is, is no more than a million years old, and young stars like this are not usually expected to have large planetary bodies already formed around them, but what appears to be happening in this image is that we're seeing the disk of, of gas that's left over from the star formation, where the planets are currently forming, and there appear to be dark rings inside that disk. Um, now, if you imagine a picture of Saturn's rings, you've got Saturn, you've got the, the, the rings in a, in a plane, and you've got dark bands inside those rings. And the dark bands are where there are little moonlets or moons which are sweeping up the material and kind of accumulating it onto the surface as they go round in their orbit around Saturn. And the same thing is probably happening in this disk, as these newly formed large planets are in orbit around the star. They're sweeping up material from the accretion disk and leaving dark rings behind them, which is really interesting because stars this young are not thought to have planets that big already at this point in their lives after only a million years that would be capable of leaving rings big enough for us to see them with the telescope from the Earth. So this is quite interesting in the in the context of star formation theory as to what's actually why this has happened for this, this star that's quite young. Um, Does that help to show why you get these very close, what they call the hot Jupiters near to stars? You know, the ones where they said, we have no idea how these can form so near to a star. Yeah, maybe. Well, the interesting thing with those is, of course, that we know an awful lot of hot Jupiter systems, but the reason we know so many of those compared to systems that are, you know, like our own solar system, where rocky planets are nearer to the star, is just because those big planets close in are the easiest ones to spot. Yeah. A bit of a selection effect. So yeah. they might not be quite so ubiquitous as they first appear. No. But just yeah, if this was it's, like still, a, it's still an interesting problem as to yeah, how they form. Um, but yeah, it's a really nice little press release from, from ALMA. There's not a, a paper yet associated with this. This is not an actual scientific result. It was taken as uh, as verification data with the array. So they're testing out the, the long baselines, which is the, the telescopes that are furthest away from the centre of the, the array, basically. The further apart they are, the higher the resolution your images get. And they have to test these different modes of observation before they start offering to them to the, yeah before they start offering them to the scientific community. So this was a, a test image to see whether these techniques worked. And so this is the highest resolution observation ever made with ALMA so far. It's got the, the most detail in it. So it's well worth having a look for. It's amazing. It does. You can really imagine that that's planets sort of sweeping yeah. their little rings. It looks like there's a, quite a lot forming relatively close together, sort of towards the outside. I don't know yeah. whether they're destined to somehow bash each other around or merge together or... Yeah, they made it. I mean, what there's there's interesting models of the the early solar system where it looks like some of the planets actually, some of the gas giants switch places. Wow. Mm. Um, there was this weird resonance effect, and that basically scattered a lot of the the debris and the the asteroids that were in in the inner solar system, um, and possibly caused the the heavy late bombardment, which was good for us because it meant it got them out of the way, and the Earth is much less likely to get <laughs> here now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, things like that could happen in this system as well. And the, the planetary orbits that we see now after only a million years may not be the ones that you'd see if you came back in five billion years, the age of our solar system, and had another look. So it's, it's impressive just how closely the actual image matches up with the predictions of artist's impression that they did. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so they, they were observing at a frequency of 233 gigahertz which to radio astronomers like me, what we usually work at 1.4 or 5 gigahertz, that sounds quite high. Um, that's a wavelength of 1.28 millimetres, which is really tiny. And they got a resolution, an angular resolution of 35 milliarc seconds, which is better than Hubble. Mm. Um, Hubble's resolution is about 50 milliarc seconds, I think, in a lot of the images that you see. So it's better than the Hubble Space Telescope. That's cool. And presumably if you looked with Hubble, you just wouldn't see emission coming out at the right wavelength to... To yeah, be visible you'd, to an you'd be looking telescope. yeah a different part of the spectrum, so you would see different things. Each part of the spectrum shows you different things about the physics. So yeah, to see this disk, you you need to look at other frequencies than just the optical. Well, now on to a fully formed astronomer, Dr. Joe Zunt answers your astronomical questions. 
So we'll start with a question from Brian Russell, and that is, we recently had a great family day out at Jodrell Bank, but one question we left with was, how do neutron stars get their magnetic field? It can't be from charged particles being swept around by the spin of the star, as pulsars wouldn't exist. The magnetic field would always be aligned with the spin axis. So as Brian mentioned, when electrons flow and charged particles flow around a star as it rotates, that generates a magnetic field, just like coil of wire generates a magnetic field. So the way that gets transferred into the pulsar magnetic field is very interesting. So when the supernova goes off, which ends the star's life, and begins its new life as a neutron star, the magnetic field doesn't go away, and the magnetic field that's within the central regions of the star stays there, because it's conserved, it doesn't, it doesn't vanish just because that happens and the electrons are still flowing. As the star collapses into the much smaller neutron star, compared to how big it was before, those field lines are all compressed. There are the same number of magnetic field lines, but they're all compressed into a much, much smaller area as, as the star shrinks. So that's why there's a much stronger magnetic field in the neutron star as there was in the original star, basically because all the magnetic lines are all squashed and compressed to much higher density. The reason that spin axis doesn't align the magnetic field of the star is that there's a massive kick. When the supernova goes off, there's a huge kick on the star. The force of the explosion, which is very rarely perfectly symmetric, it tends to kind of trigger on one side or the other. And that means that it pushes the axes off. So the magnetic field stays in the old axis that it was. The spin axis rotates to the new one given by the kick. Our next question is from Simon Lackinger, and that is, does E equals HF mean only discrete frequencies are possible? Yes and no. So the question's about photons and their energy and their frequency. This relation, quantum mechanical discovery, connects the frequency of a photon to the energy of that photon and says they're just proportional. Planck's constant as the constant of proportionality. So that's saying that, you know, when you have a single particle of light, a photon, you know its frequency, you know its energy. Now, what Simon is asking about is the fact that we do find energy levels in atoms. Atoms have discrete energy levels. The electrons going round atoms have discrete levels. They don't go anywhere between the atom and the outside world. They have very fixed orbits, which which are kind of derived from quantum mechanics. And it's transitions between those orbits which give you discrete frequencies that atoms emit at. So the general answer to the question is that no, photons, particles of light, can have any frequency they want to and any energy they want to. You know, there's a whole continuum of these things. But in the specific case of photons emitting from atoms, there are certain discrete frequencies. So you can, you can get other frequencies if the electron manages to escape completely when it jumps around in the atom. But if the electron, which is the case most of the time, jumps between these discrete standard energy levels in an atom, that emits at standard energies or discrete energy levels. And that means we do see discrete frequencies of light coming from excited atoms, you know, emission from hot gas. Now that's got very important astrophysical consequences. One of the big things that you can really see in the universe and one of the big mechanisms of emission is called emission lines. So when we look at the spectrum of lots of different kinds of objects, we see lots of continuum emission, so lots of emission of light with a broad range of frequencies, but spikes, very bright emissions of energy and emissions of photons at particular frequencies that correspond to the chemistry of what's going on in the atom. So for example, we can see all across the universe the hydrogen lines, which correspond to transitions within hydrogen. So very specific frequencies that we can detect from atomic emission. And these are important because they provide the core of spectroscopy. So that's how we study both the chemistry and the composition of stars and galaxies, and also of redshift. Because these are discrete lines and we know where they are, we can tell if they've been redshifted or Doppler shift as the universe expands. So these lines form the core of our understanding of how the universe is expanding. Our final question comes from John Brooks, and it is, how can astrophysicists weigh a black hole when we can't even see or detect them directly? Is the weight an estimate of its estimated size? If so, then how could they possibly estimate a density or weight of a singularity material without direct interactions? So it's important to distinguish two things. First of all, we don't make any claim about the mass or the density or, or these properties of the singularity of a black hole. So the singularity of a black hole is what's right in its core, and that's totally inaccessible to observations. All the things we know about that have to come from theory and understanding from the theoretical properties of black holes. So we, we don't, we're not saying anything about the singularity itself. What we're talking about is the whole black hole, so everything within the event horizon of the black hole. And John is absolutely right that we can't measure those things directly. Black holes are just too small for us to directly see them and measure their properties, and they're also black, hence the name. So we can't do anything directly. So all our evidence is kind of a little bit indirect. The main way we understand the mass of black holes is through dynamics. So we can look at the effect of the black hole on things around it, so the gravitational effect of the black hole on its surroundings. So that's both on stars, sort of individual objects, and there's a beautiful example of this in the centre of our galaxy. The Milky Way black hole can be seen, not directly, but we can see its effect on stars which kind of orbit around it. And we can see these stars you know, going in a perfectly straight line and then whizzing round in a new direction as the invisible black hole perturbs their motion. So we can see that kind of thing. So we can tell the mass there from the gravity. And secondly, we can see it in a kind of more general way in active galactic nuclei. So we, that's black hole in the centre of distant galaxies with surrounding them a disk of material gradually flowing into them and orbiting it and then falling into the black hole. 
So in that situation, we're looking at the dynamics of a whole continuous region, not just individual stars. So we can see that material going around, and we can actually map it very, very cleverly using a technique called a reverberation mapping, where we look at reflections from that material of light on different parts of it. So as something falls into the black hole and gives a little flash, we can see the reflections of that flash from all the material going around the black hole. So that from that, we can make sort of maps of the region around a black hole, and therefore a map of how those things are moving. And when we've got the motion dynamics, we can use that information to tell us about the mass of the black hole itself. There's one other way, which is pretty cool, which is gravitational redshift. So when photons are emitted from material which is in a gravitational field, then they are redshifted just as they are when they're emitted by moving objects. And we can use that gravitational redshift to map the gravity of black holes, and that tells us the mass. John had one other question, which I'll cover briefly, which is, is the mass of a black hole related to its size? And the answer is yes. And for a given mass black hole, there's exactly one size it can have. There's a very distinct relation between those two things, and which comes directly from general relativity. That's at least true for a perfectly round Schwarzschild black hole, as they're called. So yes, we're measuring both the size and the mass when we do these measurements. Thanks for that, Joe. And now on to the feedback. We've had a postcard. Yay! Very exciting. We haven't had one of those in a while. From Neil Hickling. And he says he actually sent us another one from Turkey back in August, but it doesn't seem to have arrived. And indeed, we've had a look around on the wall, and I don't think it did arrive, but instead he sent us one from Sheffield showing sheep and a landscape. It's a nice autumn landscape. It's around this time of year, isn't it? Yeah, it's very tiny. Yeah, well, what is (laughs) quite odd about this is that this was sent the day after I went walking in this very location (laughs) above Fullwood in Sheffield. And I can confirm that there were a lot of sheep. And I could actually see that view one day after Neil sent this postcard. This superimpose a tiny version of you. <laughs> and he said, keep up the good work on the show. Thank you very much for that. So on the email, thank you for all your Ask an Astronomer questions. And thanks for all the likes and shares on Facebook. And on Twitter, we actually have Megan tweet, woohoo! Philae has apparently landed. Now we can record the Jodcast, <laughs> which we are now doing. Yeah. I had to include that one. We've About gone just over an hour after it landed. <laughs> We've gone all meta. We're just having our own uh, own feedback. <laughs> Uh, And Ian Harrison also tweeted about recording the Jodcast news for the first time. Uh, So thanks for all the retweets and the follow Fridays as well. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can always send us post the addresses on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show, and it only remains to say thank you to Sally Cooper and Scott Ransom for the interviews. The editors were Ben Shaw, Sally Cooper, Monique Henson, and Christina Illier. So until next time, jod on! on.